you know, I was a meth user and I would not have had Narcan on me because I would have been like, well, why do I need it? I don't use opiates and I don't hang out with people who use opiates. Even people in the harm reduction community, a lot of times, aren't really getting that people are overdosing and dying from stimulants at a record rate too. There's also psychological issues that we can be talking about too when it comes to the effects that drugs can have on us, right? So if someone is really down and becomes acutely suicidal because of the drugs that they've been taking, is that connected? You don't know when you're primed for an overdose. You just don't. And there's emotions that go into it, drug set and setting, that's all very important. Welcome to episode 12 of Debunked, the only Utah podcast combining evidence-based health practices with storytelling to challenge the stereotypes and debunk the myths about harm reduction, opioids, and substance use disorders. I'm Tim Light, and today we will be discussing the myth, only people who use opioids are at risk of overdose. In this conversation, we'll cover the definition of stimulants, the medical risks of using stimulants, and we'll also talk about the current state of stimulants being laced with other substances, including opioids. Before we jump into the conversation, let's first have our guests introduce themselves. I'm Patrick uh, Rizak, the founder and programs director of One Waste Recovery. I'm also a person who has used drugs. There you go. Patrick's also on our editorial board, and he is one of the many champions of harm reduction in this state, and we love him and appreciate him. Thank you. Okay, Brian, do you want to go? All right. Hello. Thanks for having me. My name is Brian Rogers, and I'm the executive director of One Voice Recovery. I've been uh, with One Voice for about a year now. Coming up in uh, July, it'll be a full year. But um, previous to that, I got into this world when I was working at the Utah AIDS Foundation. I finished up my dissertation work on HIV counseling and got involved at that time. That's when syringe exchange became legal in Utah. So I got involved in the Utah Syringe Exchange Network and met up with Mindy and Patrick and have been sort of in this harm reduction world since then. And you said your dissertation, so Dr. Rogers then? Yeah, Dr. Rogers, if you're nasty. <laughs> yeah, you can call me Brian. That's good. Okay, sounds good. All right, Mindy, you're up. I'm Mindy Vincent. I'm the founder and executive director of the Utah Harm Reduction Coalition, and I am also on the editorial board for the podcast. Mindy has been on our show before, as I'm sure you all remember, because she is unforgettable. I try. Okay, so again, the myth that we are debunking today is only people who use opioids are at risk of overdose. So I want to first hear one or two sentences from each of you about what you think when you hear this myth. So Patrick, what do you think when you hear this myth? I think with love, it's highly inaccurate. It's a myth that needs to be dispelled. People absolutely overdose from stimulants. If they're adulterated, if they're not adulterated because of opiates, regardless, I've had three heart attacks. That's an overdose from stimulants. People have kidney failure, renal failure, all types of things. It's just a lot of states don't classify the deaths. If I were to have passed from my last heart attack, I would have been classified as cardiac arrest, not from an overdose from methamphetamine, for example. So we have to do sort of some work and advocacy. and We need to sort of update how states are reporting. Uh, not all states report the same way as well. Patrick, when you hear this myth, does it ever hit a personal chord? Knowing that you have had heart attacks from using stimulants, uh, what does that feel well, like when someone says this? I mean, I had three heart attacks from directly related to methamphetamine and cocaine use together. But I also overdosed from injecting meth that was laced with fentanyl. So I had to be with Narcan. And so I know what that's like as well. And that's not something that I ever expected to occur in my life because I'm not a person that uses opiates. That's very, very scary, Patrick. That's a, such a valid point that we don't really talk about because people who are the meth users, you know, I was a meth user and I would not have had Narcan on me because I would have been like, well, why do I need it? I don't use opiates and I don't hang out with people who use opiates. The fact that people who are using meth are less likely to have Narcan on them than an opiate user means that they're at even higher risk of overdose if, God forbid, they get something that's contaminated with fentanyl. Well, and they're in denial about it. I mean, so when, I, when I'm interfacing with people, clients within our programs, we're surveying them uh, about, have you noticed any differences in your drugs? Have you noticed, you know, and what are those differences? Without giving them the information, you want to hear from them, like, what are you noticing about the, the differences in your drugs? Oh, they're heavier. It's hard to breathe. I can't keep my eyes open. I will pass out. I overamp, but it's not really overamping. It's a different type. The rush is different. So we're finding out all this information from people firsthand that are using drugs currently. Uh, uh, stimulant users are reporting opiate, opioid type withdrawal symptoms after three and a half hours, all this stuff. 
It's commonly assumed that people can only overdose on opioids, like heroin or fentanyl. For example, people often say, no one ODs on crystal meth. Of course, as our guests are relating, you can certainly use too much of an amphetamine to the point where your health is at risk. Or you can use something that you think is only an amphetamine that actually is combined with another drug that may induce an overdose, such as meth being contaminated with fentanyl. However, it's also true that an overdose on opioids looks very different than an overdose on amphetamines. That's why we call overdosing on an amphetamine overamping. If you've ever had one too many energy drinks or cups of coffee, you have a sense of what overamping might feel like. The chemical, in this case, caffeine, that you'd relied on to feel alert, cheerful, and productive might now be causing feelings of confusion, exhaustion, and stress. The caffeine is no longer serving its purpose for you. When the caffeine wears off, you might feel sleepy or distressed and have a headache, worse than before you'd consume the beverage. Overamping on amphetamines like meth or cocaine can mean different things for different people. Sometimes it's physical. You might feel nausea, a tightness in the chest, a racing pulse, or have hypertension. Overamping on cocaine is especially dangerous as it is much more likely than other stimulants to cause seizures, heart attacks, or strokes. Other times, overamping is psychological. It might induce paranoia, anxiety, or psychosis. Sometimes the feelings that one person considers overamping, another person actually considers as just part of the high, or maybe even seeks a feeling that someone else tries to avoid. There are a multitude of harm reduction practices for using amphetamines more safely, such as testing the drugs for fentanyl, carrying naloxone even if your drug of choice is not an opioid, using sterile supplies, having supplies for safer sex, as amphetamines often increase sex drive, drinking plenty of water, eating and sleeping enough, and getting regular heart and blood pressure checkups. It's important to look out for yourself and for others. When I hear that myth, it scares me. The last thing I expected was to be dealing with fentanyl and meth. I, I already knew that I could overdose from stimulants. So there's two separate issues there. Uh, sort of fallacy in the, in the communities of people that use drugs is, oh, you can't overdose from stimulants, especially methamphetamine, you just overamp. Well, overamping is a sign of overdose. You overamp and you pass out, you wake up and you're spun. But also aside from that, people have strokes, heart attacks, all kinds of different things. Even people in the harm reduction community, a lot of times, aren't really getting that people are, are overdosing and dying from stimulants at a record rate, too. So even people in the harm reduction community may be perpetuating this myth unknowingly. Unknowingly, I believe so, yeah. Not all, some. I mean, just to remind the listeners, fentanyl is extremely dangerous. It's way more powerful than heroin, which is really frightening, because if you don't know that's in any drug, that's just a recipe for overdose and a fatal overdose, especially if you don't have naloxone, right? Brian, when you hear this myth, what do you think? Yeah, well, first, I think just the term overdose, I think we have come to a very myopic or sort of a tunnel vision idea of that is related to opiates, right? About just the signs of an overdose and what that does and the slowing of the heart and people turning blue and these things when if we're just talking about having a sort of adverse reaction due to the drugs that we're taking, you know, whether it be overamping or having serious heart conditions. I also like to think, I mean, we talk so much about the physiological, but there's also psychological issues that we can be talking about too, when it comes to the effects that drugs can have on, on us, right? So if someone is really down and becomes acutely suicidal because of the, the drugs that they've been taking, is that connected? Can we, you know, or if someone's having a psychotic reaction to their come down, is that an overdose, right? So I think we just need to expand our view of what this word means. And then of course, it also links into all the things that Patrick was saying, right? So I mean, there are physiological problems with stimulants. There are also issues with fentanyl being laced in stimulants. And we're seeing those very physical contradictional understandings of overdose being keyly related to stimulant use. So it's not just an opiate problem. So Mindy, what do you think when you hear this myth? One of the first things I think is, well, one, that it's not true, but also when we're talking about overdose, we're also not just talking about stimulants either. We are talking about any substance that a person can put in their body. You can put too much of any substance in your body. Although you could never die from cannabis, there are plenty of people who have eaten too many edibles and have had issues from that, right? Like not long lasting, but still in that moment. And that can happen with any substance. And then also whenever you're putting any kind of substance into your body, this is why I'm also a huge fan of legalization because anything that you put in your body can be adulterated period. And you have absolutely no idea what could be in it. I have injected methamphetamines that as soon as I injected it, I coughed really hard. And then, you know, which is a good sign, 
But then literally it like just made me like pass out. I still to this day don't know what was in it, you know, but any substance that you're taking into your body that was not sent through legal passages absolutely can be adulterated with anything, which means that someone could overdose from anything. And those overdoses could be fatal. And actually I have to admit, like I'm somebody who has been a part of the problem of perpetuating the myth that people don't overdose on stimulants particularly. In fact, Patrick has corrected me in public, like God, at least a dozen times over the last several years, because I have been somebody who says, I'm like, well, you know, at least you're using meth, which means you're going to be much safer than somebody using opioids. And Patrick's like, well, not necessarily, you know, because if we think it can't happen and I was a drug user for 17 years, then what does that say about people who don't even know how to use drugs properly? Maybe it's arguably more dangerous because you won't prepare at all for that overdose. Well, I'll tell you what, I typically, when I was using, when I was using, that was my coping strategy. I don't use anymore. It just no longer serves me. So I don't use the word recovery anymore either. I use the word healing just to throw that onto the mix here. I usually used alone. It's not an activity that I would get, that I engaged in in a big social setting. I usually isolated myself. I went to a very dark place at points. It just so happened to be that when I overdosed because of fentanyl being in my meth, there were two people with me that knew what to do. So they were able to to administer three doses of naloxone. It still took over a minute to get my heart beating again. They did call EMS and I refused to go to the hospital, but that was a rare occasion. I wouldn't be here today. I wouldn't even be on this, you know, with OVR, I wouldn't be having this conversation. I wouldn't be able to look another person in the eye and say, listen, this is why maybe you should think about having some naloxone with you. And three doses of naloxone is no joke. It's not, and they administered it quickly. I remember when, when I did that shot and it was not that much. It was the last corner part of my bag, so it was less than a quarter gram. It was less than a 0.20, so that would be two-tenths of a gram, which is, for me, a very little amount. And that's what did it, because of the concentration of the adulterants were so great in that little bit. And the other myth, too, that I want to sort of correct you, people have this perception that, that you only overdose when you're injecting. It's not true. And oftentimes, an overdose happens over a period of hours. It's not an instantaneous thing. People have this perception like, oh, you just do a shot or this happens and you're immediately out. That does happen to a lot of people. That's how it happened to me. But I had also used a lot up until that point. So for me, it's not clear. Like it was just that final little dose that put, pushed me over the edge. But I felt the power of that dose like I hadn't felt before. And so I knew immediately when it was happening Within seconds, what was happening? I felt my lungs stop and I felt my heart stopping. It was the craziest feeling. But a lot of people overdose over hours. And so they're getting a substance that is adulterated and they're not getting the regular effect from, the, from what they're using. And, you know, they get sick. That's another thing. You get really sick and so you think, oh, I'll just do more because I'll feel better. I just need to raise my pH and drink this. I need to take some vitamins, drink water. But over a period of hours, people will will begin to start overdosing and they're, and it's a process. People also, there are so many things that go into overdose yeah. outside of just the amount that you take that people don't even take into account. When my sister overdosed and died, she split, a, like you were talking about, Patrick, my sister split a 20 bag of heroin with her boyfriend and my sister used opioids. She took, she could take enough opioids to kill an elephant. No problem. You know, and $10 worth of heroin killed my sister. You don't know when you're primed for an overdose. You just don't. And you, there's emotions that go into it. Drug set and setting, that's all very important. Uh, and people don't take that into account. And also just, I think sometimes the body's just had enough. Yeah, you do. You get to a point where you're, you're like, for me, like I was so thin. Every time I had a heart attack, I was down to 100 pounds. I'm 155 pounds right now. 100 pounds. Patrick, that's horrifying. What you're saying is so true because it, my my body got to a point where it's like, oh, I have just had enough and I it couldn't take anymore. These are all really, really good points. We have to take a break. But after the break, we'll talk about, we'll, we'll let one of you give a definition of what stimulants are. And then we'll talk about some of the medical risks of using stimulants further. But also, um, Mindy, you said something Drug set and setting or something? What did you say? Drug set and setting. Yeah. I would love to hear that. I think that's something that would be good for everybody. That's an important piece of harm reduction. So yeah. 
The Debunked Podcast is made possible by our members and the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration Rural Opioid Technical Assistance Program, offering programs to address barriers of access to rural communities related to opioid use disorder. And Regents Blue Cross Blue Shield of Utah works to transform healthcare from the inside out. We reduce confusion, waste, and red tape for members as we help them navigate the healthcare system. The information on the show is so important, so relevant, and definitely information that more people need to hear. So please take a minute to rate and review the show. There's something about the algorithm. The more reviews, the more debunked shows up in people's feeds. So rate and review. Thanks. Welcome back to Debunked. The myth that we are debunking today is only people who use opioids are at risk of overdose. So right now we're going to talk about what stimulants are and we'll talk about some of the medical risks of using stimulants. So Brian, can you give us a definition of stimulants and what drugs fall into this category? Well, I mean, really basic definition would be, you know, what we think of as uppers. So things like cocaine, methamphetamine, even things like Adderall, people, you know, stuff that people do to kind of feel up, feel more energized, uh, speed. I also like to think of there's a definition or a kind of discussion about the difference between addiction, between opiates and stimulants. And Maya Shavitz in her book, Unbroken Brain, talks about it as uh, the addiction to stimulants is sort of like an addiction to the the hunt or a chase, whereas opiates is more about like that satisfaction, that sort of satiated feeling. So it's something that I found very relatable, someone who does have a proclivity towards stimulants that it was like, oh, right, like this is so much of how I am in life. You know, like I'm excited about that chase, whether it's a chase for a promotion or a chase for like love interest or sexual encounter or whatever. There's always something about the chase versus the feeling afterward. And the way that that was framed is like this uh, idea that it's about feeling up. It's about feeling engrandized. It's about feeling, yeah, like you're ready for the hunt and the chase. And again, on this episode, we want to debunk the myth that only people who use opioids are at risk of overdose. So we're not just talking about stimulants, but the main focus of this episode will be stimulants. You know, people can have alcohol poisoning. I mean, there's lots of things that can happen, you know, with other substances other than stimulants. Alcohol is an incredibly dangerous substance. It is one of only two substances that you can die from withdrawals from. People die on accident from binge drinking alcohol all the time. Also, alcohol-related deaths account for twice as many all combined. And so it's just something that we don't talk about because it's legal. And because we've already gone through the prohibition, we've already done all that decriminalization with alcohol, which is what we need to do now with regular drugs. But so it's, it's not talked about, but I'm right. so glad you brought that up. But died in Utah, we're going to talk about Utah specifically. More people died last year of alcohol-related causes than opiates. Over 700, and it was over 600 for opiates. Opioid. It's wildly normalized, so yeah. we don't think of it in the same, the same way. Absolutely. So bringing it back to stimulants, what are some of the medical risks of using a stimulant such as meth or cocaine? Methamphetamine and cocaine do a lot of damage to the heart muscle. They do a lot of damage to the sac around the heart. They do a lot of damage to the blood vessels, to the lining of the vein walls. They create a lot of pressure. Um, Interestingly, when somebody is having a heart attack from cocaine, you can have otherwise normal vital signs. So, you know, when you go to the ER and coke does a lot of instant damage to the heart muscle. I don't know all of the ins and outs of how that works. People could probably Google that and find that out. But uh, in long-term, long-term risks for, for someone you know, with methamphetamine tardive dyskinesia that maybe you don't always see with opiates, but there are some you know, damage to the kidneys, damage to the liver. So it just sort of depends on people too. I mean, like I, I used to be able to write beautiful cursive. I used to be able to write calligraphy. I would spend hours when I was a kid obsessing about my handwriting. I could write in different angles and I could write all these different ways do you know now that if I have to handwrite a form for work at work for at one voice recovery, I have somebody else do it for me because meth has ruined my handwriting. It has ruined my, that part of my brain that, that handles my handwriting. And that's something I've had to deal with. I've taken great pride over the years on that. I can write calligraphy. I used to love doing it. It was something that I felt passionate about. I can't do it anymore. I like, I can practice at it and get better at it, but I have to teach myself basically all over again. So there are major risks of brain damage and cardiovascular damage. And you mentioned earlier that stroke is also, stroke, heart attack, those are also issues. Yeah, I've known over 11 people that have died from acute renal failure because of methamphetamine. I have to pose the question, how many of those people on their death certificates 
was it recorded that they overdosed from uh, methamphetamine? I don't think any of them were. But no. that was the cause of their renal failure, right? Yeah. And so when we're talking about HIV and we're talking about, about uh, harm reduction strategies for people with HIV as well, over six of those people were also HIV positive. And those, so the medications that you take to manage HIV had a role in that. Uh, because long-term, those medications can do some damage to your kidneys. And so when people are HIV positive and they're using methamphetamine, there are certain medications to treat HIV that may be a better option for them versus some other ones. I won't name names because I don't want to get into a big lawsuit about bashing medications. But as a person living with HIV, I know the difference. So th- that also played a role. But th- that stuff isn't really recorded in that way. But, uh, but acute renal failure is very serious. So that was six of them. That leaves five more that weren't HIV positive that still died in the same way. And it was a quick death. I mean, it was a matter of a couple of days, even with mm-hmm. dialysis. That's so sad. Gosh, I'm sorry, Patrick. That's really... Thank you. Uh, Mindy, earlier you had a little acronym about harm reduction. Can you share with us what that acronym was and kind of tell us what it means? Drug set and setting. Is it that one? Yeah, that one. I wish that was mine. I think it's just a long known used term in harm reduction. But uh, you have to take into account the drug you're using, how you're using it, and all the things that encompass that go with that. You know, like, are you mixing it with any other drugs? Have you taken that kind of drug before? How often do you take it? How much do you take? And then the set and setting, like where you are, who you're around, what kind of an emotional state you're in, because people's emotional state plays a huge role. And not only how loaded you get, have you ever noticed like when you're really upset about something, you start drinking, you end up sloppy drunk much faster. That's because the setting, all of those things go into account with the drug set and setting, and they all play a role in the effects and impacts of substances. You nailed it. And that's so true because a lot of people don't understand that piece. If there's a loved one watching right now and they're watching this podcast and they have a loved one that's struggling and their loved one has just been kicked out of the house because they're setting a boundary. And that person is feeling a bit shameful because now they're, they don't have anywhere to go. The issue with that person may be a little bit different than if you were allowed your loved ones to use at home. You know, that may be a radical idea, but it's radical acceptance. And it, it can be very helpful. And it can be a life-saving intervention for people that are struggling. It was for me. The setting piece of that is so critical. And the emotional state that people are in and what they're dealing with all around them. My last struggle last year, I'm going to say this, the drug use was not the most damaging to me. It was the setting issues. And it was stigma. And it was all kinds of other things that were not related to the actual drug itself, 100%. And then it was my own belief about the situation I was in and how that was being perpetuated by my behavior and my choices. So the setting piece perhaps is one of the most critical elements that will sort of help delineate somebody from moving to a place of hope versus saying, saying suck in a place of fear and hopelessness. So drug set setting. A lot of the conversation around preventing drug overdoses focuses on people who use opioids, right? But as we've talked about, people who use alcohol can overdose, cocaine, other stimulants such as amphetamines may also overdose. So what are some of the things we can do to prevent these kind of overdoses? Brian, do you want to start there and then maybe go Mindy? Uh, Sure. Yeah. And I think a big part and something that we should always think about, you know, just uh, piggybacking off of the concept of drug set and setting, you know, like are when using, um, making that choice to, to use a stimulant, being able to check in on your emotional state, you know, what your motivations are in that moment. Is it totally to escape? Is it to numb something? What What are you trying to achieve in that moment? And I think when we have a good idea of that and, you know, if it's something that's more social, if it's something you're doing because you are feeling very negatively about something and you're kind of coping in this way, um, I think that's a huge part. And then, of course, just maintaining a level of moderation, right? Trying to not get too ahead of yourself or overamped, but rather using in a way that's going to be achieve what your desired goal, but not overdoing it, essentially. And I mean, those are just some things to consider with really any substance. Thanks, Brian. Mindy, what are your thoughts on that? Much like Brian was saying, low and slow. That's one of the best things you can do. As a person who has had addiction issues in my life, um, when I'm partaking of any kind of substance, which I don't take hard substances anymore, but even when I'm doing plant-based medicines or drinking or anything, 
I pay really close attention to what kind of mental place I'm in because if I'm finding that I am partaking in these substances to escape from something to medicate sadness or something like that, it's not an appropriate time for me to be using anything. I want to hit on something that Patrick talked about earlier. He said because he was using with people that one time when he overdosed, would you all agree that also using by yourself also checking in and then using by yourself is extremely dangerous. I mean, That's what, what I was just going to say. Using alone is like probably the most dangerous thing you could do. Also, it says something about maybe where you're at too. Like if you're using alone, you're not probably necessarily using for fun. And when also though, when you're alone, nobody can help you. Nobody can save you. And that's one of the biggest reasons why we have to smash the stigma associated with substance use at all. And especially associated with relapse because what people do is they lock themselves in a bathroom to use and then nobody can help them. And even if a few minutes has passed and you're like, gosh, they're taking a long time in there. You know, it's like people are already dead by then. It's too late. And if not, they could have serious brain damage or other trauma. Brian, what were your Absolutely. thoughts? Yeah, I was going to say, and also when you're using in, um, with others in kind of in a more social situation, you're less likely to seek total oblivion, right? Like you're, you're still going to be trying to maintain some sort of um, level of coherence. <laughs> Whereas I know when people use alone, sometimes it is purely to seek oblivion and get to that blackout state, whatever that looks like, depending on what they're using. Yeah, good points. Um, so what are some of the signs of overdose if uh, by stimulants? And then also what can people, if they are using a stimulant, what are some other signs of overdose that they should look for? Patrick, do you want to comment on that first? Well, with methamphetamine specifically and cocaine, a lot of times, um, so profuse sweating, coldness, chills. Uh, but with methamphetamine too, what happens to a lot of people is your eyes get googly, where you've got a wandering eye. You're, you've got your eyes, it's hard, your eyes are hard to control. You they shake. They shake. It's yeah, like... They shake. But when you're overdosing on meth and when you're at that point where you've, you've had too much, your eyes will do that but they will be very hard to control. So when you have someone who's in front of you, maybe it's your loved one or someone that you're interfacing with because of the work you do, and they're not talking coherently or they're talking sentences, but in mid-sentence, they start talking gibberish. The beginning of the sentence makes sense, but halfway through the sentence, they start talking gibberish and their eyes are doing funky stuff and they're start nodding out a little bit. They can't stand still. They're talking 55 miles a minute. They can't stop um, walking around. And with methamphetamine specific, people will say, I just don't feel right. People will say, you know, I, I just, I feel really effed off. And you can see there's a grayness in the skin. There's something that happens with the coloring of your skin and something that happens with Nurses have this sort of instinct when you go into an ER, every single time I went in, all three times for a heart attack, they looked at me and immediately, I didn't have to say anything, they just said, get him back. And they, and they immediately took me to the back, except the last time, the third time I had to wait an hour because I was a drug user. I won't bust out the hospital, but it was in Utah and it took an hour because I was uh, an addict. But Patrick's using air quotes with all of these things. But anyway... If somebody overamps from methamphetamine and they pass out, they still need to be monitored. But really, at the end of the day, when someone is struggling like that, they just need to go to the ER. They need to get, be seen by, by a medical professional. If someone's watching this and they're a loved one and they encounter this, they need to go and they need to be with them. They need to not just drop them off. They need to advocate for them. They need to be there with them. They need to hold their person's hand. They need to let them know that, like, you know what, we're going to help you with this. We don't like what you're doing right now. It's, we hate it. We don't like the way you're yelling at us. We don't like the way you're treating us. We don't like any of that, but we're here for you. And we love you regardless. And so we're going to sit with you at the hospital. People, when they're in that state, can't manage that alone. It's very difficult. Well, and I think the reality is most people going to an ER for any reason have trouble managing that alone, um, yeah. let alone if you are in an altered state. You know, Patrick, you bring up a really good point and it leads into the next question. So if someone who is listening knows someone who's using cocaine or um, other stimulants or alcohol, and that person may be at risk of overdose, how can the listener help their loved one? They can um, encourage them to drink water. They can stay with them. When people are at risk of overdosing because they're using a lot over time. So if somebody is with that person, 
I think the most important thing that they can do is not let their anger become their person's problem. They just need to be with the person and love them in the moment for whoever they are. And if they don't like that they're using, they need to keep that to themselves. That's my opinion. Keep that to yourself. Otherwise, don't be with the person. Find someone else that can be a support to them that isn't going to bring extra shame-based layers on top of them because that all sort of matters. So um, just be with them and love them in the moment. And, if, and you know, have a boundary about it. You know, I don't really want to see you using, can you do it in the bathroom? But I'm still going to watch this movie with you. Because what that's going to do is help the person who is using at least feel like, okay, there's a little bit of sense of normalcy about this. I am not like some alien. I'm not defective. I'm not a loser. I'm not all of these things. When my, when my family members did not make their anger my problem, it was very, very helpful for me. It really was. I wasn't out and about in San Francisco getting high at motels. I was at my parents' house in a safe place. And that was really, really helpful. I, was, was, I wasn't getting obliviated like Brian was talking about. I wanted to make sure that in the morning time, I wasn't going to be obliviated so I could interact with my parents and not have them worry about my state of being in their own home because they gave me permission to use in their home, which is something they'd never done before, ever. But because they did that, it helped me. It saved my life. It did. Yeah. And I think something important to bring up with that, Patrick, is that one of the reasons why, and I think actually the main reason why people get angry when people are using substances is because they personalize it. Yeah. And addiction is not, uh, or substance use, it, it's not, it has nothing to do with somebody else. No. People cannot, they don't have the power to make you stop and they don't have the power to make you start either. You know, like when people ask me, gosh, if your kid was using drugs, would you let him use drugs in the house? I absolutely would. So I could save his life if something happened to him. Because whether I want him to or not, he's going to do what he does. And it doesn't mean enabling, I think, is the biggest crock there ever was. People do what they're going to do regardless of what anybody else does. And the best thing we could do is love somebody, help them feel safe, and let it be known that they are loved, that they are cared about, and that I hate that you're doing this. And I I'm going to love you and try to keep you safe to the best of my ability. You know, you guys bring up really great points and they're, you know, they're ultimately all about compassion. When we're trying to help anybody, we need to think about compassion. We need to get rid of the stigma. We need to get rid of the shame on episode nine of debunked. It's about, it's an episode that's geared towards youth and towards um, the myth that my kid can't be using because they're too smart or they've been raised right or what have you. And the biggest thing that we touch on in that episode is that we have to get rid of the shame because, you know, whatever someone's reason for using a substance, we can't address it with shame. And I loved what Mindy said about enabling, because if someone is in danger, there's no such thing as enabling. There's just life-saving. And that's what we have to think about because the cold, hard reality is if you feel like you're enabling someone and you walk away and that person dies, it's done. You've enabled them to the point where they there's no there's nothing left and but it's just about, a fallacy to begin with tim like yeah what makes someone believe that they're so powerful that they can either a make someone start using substances or abusing them or that they're so powerful that b they can make them stop neither one of those things are true or ever will be true we have to attack that fallacy many harm reductionists advocates and journalists have pointed out the differences in the narratives between the current opioid overdose epidemic and the crack epidemic of the 80s and 90s. Namely, that the crack epidemic was perceived to exist only in communities of color and that people who used, bought, and sold crack were so-called thugs and criminals. As Reverend Al Sharpton wrote, the stories we tell about drug epidemics matter because they influence how politicians and advocates work on solutions. The crack epidemic narrative inaccurately and wrongfully put blame primarily on individuals, particularly black Americans. And the narrative didn't talk at all about social responsibilities for the impacts of policy, such as the war on drugs, and how our system allowed individuals to fall through the cracks of education, healthcare, and access to careers and housing. In this crisis, we strive to rely more heavily on empirical data in making assertions. Decades of research show that for all communities, mass incarceration, lengthy prison sentences, stigma around drug use, and general condemnation feed the same problems they are striving to resolve. Conversely, health economies with living wage jobs, social supports, and strong educational systems offer preventative factors. And harm reduction-based services, trauma-informed care, treatment support from family and loved ones, 
These are what have been scientifically proven to help people recover and stay alive. That should be the narrative. If people are going to heal, if people are going to heal, they need access to their children. They need access to jobs. They need access to the things that are, that are meaningful for them. And so enabling is not necessarily, I mean, I've heard people say this over and over again. Well, I don't want to enable him. The reality is, is that when my loved ones paid for my phone bill, they enabled me to stay in contact. And when I knew that I had that contact, and even though I was in a place where I wasn't liking myself, as a matter of fact, I was hating myself and thought that I no longer deserved to live. Having a phone meant that I had access to people calling me and texting me every day saying, hey, don't forget what you're here for. Don't forget who you are or where you came from. And don't forget that no matter what, I love you. Because it's those interactions with people when they're at their darkest places that are going to mean the most. Like that can make or break someone. Think about all, I think about all the people that we work with that I see on a daily basis that don't have that. Oftentimes we are the only people that they've seen in a week that care about them. Can you imagine that? It's about hope. People will not get wealthy if they don't have any hope. We have to show people they matter with our behavior. We can't just deliver lip service and say, oh, you matter to us, but then behaviorally do everything that's opposite of that. That's disgusting. We need to model through our actions that we actually care about people. Stop the lip service and show people in every interaction that you're coming from a place of love and that you do care about them because that's what's felt. And that doesn't mean I have to just add on to that really quick, because I think when Patrick and Brian and I say things like that, I think sometimes people misunderstand what we're saying in some ways, because they think that what we're saying is that anything goes. And that's not true. No. Uh, you know, people have to hold boundaries, You've, you know, but tough love is not love. Love is love. And boundaries are an important part of love. Like if you have a family member who's using substances and Every time they come over, things disappear from your house, which is not typical. People who use substances are not inherently liars, cheats, and thieves. It's not true. Our system set them up to have to lie, cheat, and steal. However, if they happen to be one of those people who's inclined towards stealing and they steal when they're at your house, then that means that they've lost their privilege to come over to your house. You know what I mean? So it's okay to hold boundaries and say, you know, these are the things I can do to help you. These are the things I can't do. And I'm willing to love you throughout all of it. Even if I'm not the person who can offer you this help, I will love you and I will do what I can to try to help you find somebody who can help you in that way. If, if that's even in your capability, you know, because sometimes people just have to get that figured out for themselves. But to, for people to have a safe place to land is an important thing. And, you know, it all ties back to, it's all about the stigma, right? It's all about the stigma. It's all about the shame that is really influencing the adverse outcomes in these behaviors. So we have to take a break. But after the break, we will talk about the current state of stimulants being laced with other substances, including opioids, and also why it's important to debunk this myth in our community. So we'll be right back. The Debunk Podcast is made possible by our members and USU's Department of Kinesiology and Health Sciences, committed to educating and serving students and members of both local and extended communities in the fields of kinesiology and health science. Information at khs.usu.edu and the Tribal and Rural Opioid Initiative of Utah State University, an effort to address opioid use among rural Utahns in the hopes of eliminating myths and promoting health. Information at khs.usu.edu.outreach. So welcome back to Debunked. The myth that we are debunking today is only people who use opioids are at risk of overdose. So earlier in the show, we talked about what drugs are, stimulants, and you know the definition of stimulants. We talked about the medical risks of using stimulants. And we talked about the signs to look for in someone who may be experiencing an overdose and also, you know, what loved ones can do for people who they care about who might be at risk of an overdose. So now let's jump into talking about the current state of stimulants being laced with other substances and then why it's important to debunk this myth in our community. So Brian, can you uh, tell us about the state of stimulants being laced with other things? And then Patrick, if you have comments on it as well, I'd love to hear that. Yeah, I mean, I think anyone who sort of follows what's going on within drug using communities, like fentanyl is the hot topic, right? And it's not just in opiates. Um, it's a synthetic opiate that's incredibly powerful and can really knock people off their feet with unknowingly uh, because it's being used and put in 
not just opiates, but also stimulants. So it's being found in meth in cocaine in MDMA or ecstasy. Uh, we are finding trace to large amounts of fentanyl in these different substances. And um, Patrick has sort of firsthand experience talking about this, but we talked to our clients here at One Voice Recovery about whether or not they've sort of felt those effects. Um, and sometimes they're hyper aware of it and they recognize that it's fentanyl. But a lot of times they also don't. And they'll just say like, you know, I felt a certain heaviness or um, I don't know why, but I did a shot and it kind of knocked me out or I found myself like passed out in a couple of hours, which isn't normally what happens, you know, and they're able to sort of recognize these differences that happen with that. Luckily, we're moving forward. The state has approved to get equip us with some fentanyl test strips. So that will be good. We can provide our clients with the ability to figure out if they do have fentanyl in their in the drugs that they might be using. But that's just, you know, one small part of this. But ultimately, we're seeing it in all sorts of drugs. It's not just an opiate problem anymore. Yeah. And just to remind the listener, in episode one of Debunked, um, Dr. Aaron Fanning Madden pointed out that fentanyl is 100 times more potent than heroin. So, you know, you can imagine how easy it can be for someone to overdose if this is unknowingly laced into their drugs. Thanks, Brian. So do you think the focus on opioids has detracted attention from overdose due to, you know, other types of substances? I think we've had this big focus on the opioid, quote, epidemic, and that we are ignoring people that use other drugs that are needing assistance or support. There are agencies that are funded only through opioid grants, and so they don't have the capacity to see someone who may be struggling from some, some other, you know, substance use-related problem. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. And I think that it was something that was always ignored anyway. It was kind of always swept under the rug and not really looked at anyway. And so, yeah, I think it has made it so we're not talking about other substances. Uh, we're really just focusing on opiates, which is a good thing because a lot of people are dying, but it's not a good thing because we're neglecting a whole lot of other areas that people need assistance with. And you make a good point. It's it's a good thing we're focusing on opioids because a lot of people are dying, but we also have to make sure that we're not ignoring a whole other demographic of people who are in need. Harm reduction is all about compassion. It's all about love. And it's not compassionate and, and loving to ignore a demographic of people because they don't fit a category of maybe what you're focusing on, right? Why do you all think it's important to debunk this myth in our community? I would love to hear you know, everyone's perspective on this. So Brian, do you want to start? And then we'll go to Patrick and then Mindy. I think the danger we have when we put all of our focus on one thing like opiates is that we then let the other problems kind of run rampant. And it seems like we have a tendency, not just in the state of Utah, but in our country to kind of go on this pendulum ride between like, okay, we're going to focus all of our effort and energy on this thing and then pretend like this other thing's not happening behind our back, right? And so if we fall into that rhythm, then we're just constantly sort of dealing with these symptoms of the problem as opposed to actually like getting to any sort of root of, of these problems. And the fact of the matter is, these are two things that happen concurrently and simultaneously, and we need to be putting our energy and effort into not just looking at opiates, but stimulants as well, alcoholism as well, these other, you know, substance issues as sort of a whole spectrum. Good point. Thanks, Brian. So Patrick, why do you think it's important to debunk the myth that only people who use opioids are at risk of overdose? I have met so many beautiful people in the world that struggle and that are in this population of people that we serve. I consider myself to be one of them, not in an arrogant way, but I have a lot to offer the world. I have a lot of things that I've accomplished. I have a lot of things that I feel passionate about. And I have a lot of alignment with my higher self and my purpose and what I do with music, with, with One Voice Recovery, with the community collective, with all of these things. And if, I'm, if I can do it, if I can find some hope to heal, then so can other people. But I've been also blessed with white privilege. I've had insurance. I've made money in the music business. So I had cash that I could pay for this. And I had a family that could get me in. Uh, my family enabling me, saved me. All of us are worth the effort. It's not about one opiate user or a meth user or an alcoholic or all these stupid labels. It is just about people. And we are all worth every single effort. And if we have to eliminate some stigmatizing, fallacy-based, ignorant beliefs about people who use drugs in order to elevate them, to empower them, to find some healing, 
then then we need to do it. That's why it's so important to, to debunk this myth. Amen. Thank you. Mindy, why do you think it's important to debunk this myth? Um, well, I would just echo what both Patrick and Brian said, but also, you know, because lives are at stake. And I just believe people should have honest, pragmatic conversations. Totally. Lives are at stake. And that's why we're talking about it right now. When you have someone who struggles and you have someone that's going through this process, and when they finally get to a point of healing, they are an asset. They were an asset anyway. Absolutely. They were an untapped asset. Right. Mm-hmm. People yeah. are assets. They are capital. They bring a lot of richness to our communities, whether or not we want to admit that or not. You guys bring up a really great point. People are assets. They are, they're important. Everyone is needed. Everyone is valuable. Human life is valuable, period. So on this show, we talk a lot about harm reduction, um, being all about compassion and love. So what do you think the world would look like if more people practiced harm reduction? So Mindy, do you want to comment first and then Brian and then Patrick? Well, I feel like the world would be a much more compassionate place, but in, and even more importantly, I feel like it would be a much more balanced place because harm reduction to me is all about holding the dialectic, which is holding two seemingly opposite things together as one truth. How far do you think the world can get if they were able to say, you know, I hate what you're doing and I still love you. Can you imagine if people were able to hold those two things together, all the many things they could hold together in the world and how much progress we could make in so many areas if it didn't have to be either or all the time? And that's one of my favorite things about harm reduction is it's not either or. It's very individualized. It's very compassionate. It is grounded in justice and dignity. And, you know, most importantly, it teaches us, you know, to hold the dialectic that people's behavior are not necessarily them. You know, and I, I will always love the saying but for the grace of god there go i and but for the grace of god there was i i try to always remember one where i came from and that anybody can end up anywhere right away on your judgmental high horse because it's not helpful yeah thank you that's beautiful brian what do you think the world would look like if more people practiced harm reduction well i come to think about our earlier conversation and this discussion that we had about um drug set and setting and uh we talked a lot about belonging and the strength of that, you know, so with harm reduction brings compassion and it also gives people a sense of belonging and a sense of community and worth and asset. And that's the goal, right? And it's not being um, in this world where the dialectic is either or, but it's both and, and we want to hold, cherish and uplift and empower people. And I think the really root goal of harm reduction is in that empowerment piece. And a part of that is showing people that they are loved, that they belong, and that they are a true asset, whether they're being tapped or untapped in that very moment, there's purpose. And that is what brings healing and recovery capital to individuals. Thank you. And Patrick, do you want the last word? I think from a real experience that is really recent myself, being met with compassion by people that I knew cared about me versus being met with anger and deflection and resentment was helpful for me. So at the end of the day, if we, if we want to be helpful to someone, then harm reduction offers a pathway for someone to enter a healing process. Harm reduction is healing. It is. People don't need to be abstinence-based to have better health outcomes or better outcomes in their life in general. So I just, I think it would be a better place overall. I mean, can you, can you imagine, and everything that we do is harm reduction. You eat a better, you eat a salad, that's harm reduction. You drink more water in the day, you put on a seatbelt. What people don't realize is that we're engaged in a harm reduction pro- all day long. All of us are. And people that use drugs don't own the corner of the market on struggle or healing either. People are, in, are healing from divorce, domestic violence, capitalism, the criminal justice system, screwed markets that crash, eating disorders, drug addiction, chaotic drug use, the loss of significant relationships, the death of a loved one, of a pet. I mean, the, the list could go on and on what people are healing from. So we don't own the corner of the market. So if there are people watching and they're not maybe using drugs, think about what have you healed from today? What are you in a healing process from? And how does that relate to the person that you know that's struggling? How can you build a bridge to understanding based on that? Because what you have and what you're working on could benefit them and you can learn from them also. We all can learn from each other. I want to end with this personally. 
do whatever it is that you do that aligns with your purpose and your passion and that you love, go do that. But please don't create barriers for us when we're trying to serve the people because we may end up serving your loved one or you one day. And you would love to know that there are people that love you no matter what because you matter no matter what. The Debunk Podcast is made possible by our members and the Emma Eccles Jones College of Education and Human Services. Committed to quality teaching, outreach, and research. Offering services to the community and providing students with real-world service and research opportunities. Information at cehs.usu.edu. Thanks for joining us on Debunked, the only Utah podcast combining evidence-based health practices with storytelling to challenge the stereotypes and debunk the myths about harm reduction, opioids, and substance use disorders. I'm Tim Light, and today we debunked the myth that only people who use opioids are at risk of overdose. Today we talked about stimulants, the medical risks of using stimulants, how one can help a loved one who is at risk of overdose from any substance, and why it's important to debunk this myth in our communities. You can find links to the resources mentioned in this episode on our social media platforms at Debunked Pod. Speaking of social media, check us out on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube at Debunked Pod, or on our website at bit.ly forward slash Debunked Pod. Don't forget to tell all your friends about Debunked and remind them that they can find the show on the podcast app, Spotify, upr.org, and anywhere else they get their podcasts. Debunked is produced in collaboration with Utah Public Radio. Funding for the show comes from the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, the Office of Health Equity and Community Engagement, the Utah State University Department of Kinesiology and Health Sciences, and Regents Blue Cross Blue Shield. Our editorial board is Jay Hymas, Adam Baxter, Ashanti Moritz, Savannah Ely, Dr. Sandra Solzer, Dr. Suzanne Prevedel, Dr. Aaron Fanning Madden, Mindy Vincent, Patrick Rizak, Michelle Tapus, Dr. Marin Voss, Dr. Amy Kahn, Trisha Glass, Boyd Arrive, Hilary Deesh, Jennifer Petrus, and Susie Baker. Debunked is produced by Nick Porras, Shalane Smith Needham, and Friend Weller, with Nick Porras serving as lead producer. Our creative specialist is Autumn Gibbs. Music for today's episode was created by Nick Porras. Our science advisor is Dr. Aaron Fanning Madden, and our program directors are Dr. Sandra Solzer and Dr. Suzanne Prevedel. I'm Tim Light, host and editorial board member. Thank you.